Listener Production. Shares, Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Yep, that's right. This is our very ordinary, boring... No, it's not. It's our very special Sunday mailbag edition. You didn't think I was going to change, really, did you? You've been listening long enough to know I don't have many tricks up my sleeve. And the ones I play, I play. And I play. And I play. Repeatedly. I play. (laughs) I, of course, am Scott Phillips. He is the smarter and better looking of the two of us. He is Andrew Page Esquire, if you don't mind, the founder, managing director, and chief cook and bottle washer of strawman.com. Mr. Page, g'day. How are you, sir? I'm very good. Well, I'm glad I'm exceptionally well too this beautiful Sunday morning. It's uh, The weather is um, something and it's um, something o'clock and we're recording this on Thursday. So I don't know, but I'm sure I'm having a wonderful weekend as our listeners are downloading this and enjoying us between their ears. Uh, mate, <laughs> I want to move on to a couple of questions from our listeners. Before I do, though, I have a, I have a question for you. Mm-hmm. I can guess. Can you? What do you think we're we're, we're an online investment club. Just to, are uh, you pre- preempt? Yes, we are. I know. I knew yeah. that. I was trying to wonder what the business was called. Uh, Strongman.com. Ah, that's right. There that's you right. go. There you go. <laughs> oh, never gets old. Hey, yeah, um, let's <laughs> let's get started. Into it. Question on Twitter from someone who doesn't have a name but has like a code for their Twitter ID. I don't want to necessarily give out Twitter handles, so I'll just say it's from PPA. We'll go with that. Who says I'm curious. As to how Andrew's retirement plan may look, I love how this is a caring about your retirement. It's very kind of them. Very uh, nice. Obviously, they think we're both older than we are. Uh, how Andrew's retirement plan may look, as he is not a property investor. Does he see himself make enough to eventually buy a place with cash to secure his retirement? Will he actually retire? Brackets. <laughs> he has a job he likes and can invest until too old, so he doesn't need to. Or will he rent until the end of his days? I'm 53. And I don't own a property and I need to think about my retirement years. I like working, so I don't care if I do too until I'm old. But it would be nice to have a home. That's mm-hmm. from PPA. Uh, mate, I don't want to get too personal about your, your circumstances, but we have shared both our respective circumstances and made that something of a talking point. And obviously, PPA here has got a, a circumstance where you know, they're in a similar situation to, to you in some degree, renting, um, thinking about retirement, wondering what that might look like. About a third now, of the population. We're, we're not a small minority. Right? Now, the question mm-hmm. was, he's not a property investor. But it's not even that, right? Because you don't have a, a principal place of residence. I think when, when PPA is asking about property <laughs> investor, it just means property owner generally yep. or, or some paying off a, paying off a mm-hmm. property with a mortgage. Um, so, mate, I'll, I'll throw it to you. Um, I, I may have a, some thoughts or questions at the end, but this is, this is all about you. Can you share with us the broad outline of, of how a bloke who's renting intends to retire, pay those bills, uh, make retirement work without owning your own home. Can I just say as a very quick detour at the start, mm-hmm. so I've sort of had a little rant here or there on Twitter recently about no. property or whatever. No. And the number of times that I get a response saying, why don't you just buy a house? Which <laughs> kind of sticks in your craw a little bit. You're kind of like, oh, I didn't think of that. Oh, I forgot about these millions of dollars Thanks, I've Twitter. got in my Swiss bank account. I, you're right. I should just buy a house. So, you know, I don't, yeah. I've got, all my money's tied up in the business. There's yeah. this personal set of circumstance. I just, and, mm-hmm. you know, banks don't like to lend to-, to No, that's um, true. Business owner. And, yes. just, I just, I, and I, I think people tend to think, I don't know if you find this as well, that if you work 
in the finance industry where you work in shares, people just assume you're loaded. Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm not complaining about my lot in life, but there's, you know, there's, there's a very ordinary house and a very ordinary car parked in the driveway and there's just, there's not squillions that are, that are sitting there. Nevertheless. The thing about, think, just, the thing about compounding, right, is unless you're born with a trust fund, you start on a relatively minimum wage job flipping burgers and hopefully through life you get paid a little bit more and you've gone the business ownership route, I've gone the, the career route. But either way, you kind of build your you build your, your income over time. I was doing this, you know, it's, I was thinking the other day about, about working how long I want to work for. You know, the, it's the last doubling of your money. So the average, the average mm. market's 10% return, rule mm. of 72, doubles every seven years, right? And mm. what, use 9% eight years, whatever you want to do. Call yep. 9% eight years, right? So the last eight years of my working life, my net worth roughly should double if I, if I get that average return from the market. That mm-hmm. last double is kind of the only one that counts almost mathematically, right? If you retire seven yeah. years earlier, you retire with half the amount of money. Seven years yeah. earlier, a quarter of the money. Seven years earlier, 100%. an eighth of the money. It, it, you know, even, even at our, well, we're not the youngest people or we're not the oldest people either. It, it is going to be, you know, if we're right, that, that correctness will be shown at 65, 68, 70, not, yeah. at, not at, you know, the, the young 23-year-olds that we are today. Oh, it's, I already see it halfway through my journey, which I'm probably yeah. about halfway through. Yeah. The kind of gains I make in a year, not because I'm knocking it out of right. the park and last, right. last year was an ordinary year, but I, I you know, I, I make more than my entire portfolio was worth uh, not, not that yes. long ago, you yes. know? So, and by yeah. the way, I have, I have years where my, my entire portfolio <laughs> yeah, from 2012 right. was wiped out in a single year, but that's, yeah, yeah. that's exactly it. That's, that, it, that's compounding. So yeah. anyway, back to property. The, well, the, the plan, the, the plan, so I've talked about this on a, on on the pod before. Mm. So there's the theory and then there's the reality. I'll start with the theory. <laughs> yep. So the, if you do the sums, you account for some leverage, uh, you put in some rent increases, assume this. And I mean, it's all it's like doing a valuation on a company. It's a bunch of assumptions. Right. But not just me, but lots of people have come up with the conclusion that you're actually better off renting, mm. provided, the big provided, is that with you – what. What you do with the money than you otherwise would put to a house, you put towards investing. And mm. if you can get, even if you assume sort of our average long-term market returns and you factor for that all-important compounding <laughs> and you factor for that all-important continually adding to it. So rather than paying yeah. off a mortgage or yes. whatever, you know, I'm putting yes. money into the market all the time. You draw those lines out over, a, you know, whatever period that you're dealing with. And you end up far, far better off. You just, mm. you just do, like mathematically. So when it comes to retirement, I've got the choice of like, well, I'll just buy a house in cash or actually I'll just keep renting. Uh, what, what's wrong with renting? <laughs> you know, I'll 100% just keep renting. And then I've got this massive pool of capital that's throwing off all these dividends and, and income. And, and I'll, 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 I'll live on that. And, yep. and yep. again, mathematically be better off. The flaw in my, my, my genius plan, and as I've, <laughs> I've admitted before, is what I mm. didn't factor in was the very poor tenancy protections and just the crap that yeah. you deal with. You yeah. know? So as people well know, I'm, I'm now moving into my seventh house in about 10 years, a bit over 10 years. Yeah. And so- if I could secure a 20-year lease with rental increases indexed to something reasonable and I had the security of, of uh, tenure over that period, mm-hmm. it's a no-brainer. So the flaw in it is is that well, it's all good and well except that if, if you value security and putting roots down and mm-hmm. you know all, all of that kind of stuff. So that, that was the thing that I missed. Nevertheless, my situation being what my current situation is, it's not the worst situation in the world because uh, I'm um, 47. So I've, I've got at least another 20 years. As, as PPA said, I, hopefully I'm working till the day I die because mm-hmm. if, you, if you do what you love, you don't, you don't work, as, as the old saying goes. <laughs> uh, 
Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea is, is that if I can realistically expect what I've got now to double, so what, what, what am I? So by the time I'm 56, it doubles. And then when right. I'm, you know, uh, 64 yep. doubles and you know, right. just, it, it should get me there. Right. And I'm not going to be, it's not that I'm, I'll be buying Ferraris or anything in that time, mm-hmm. but it should mm-hmm. be enough to cover all living expenses and allow for a, a reasonable retirement. That, that, that's the plan. It's um, it's something sobering, mate. I've done the same. You kind of think of how many doubles I've got left before retirement, and you kind of realise it's why. Again, if you're listening here and you're young, please, you know, you know, I hate just you, start. you know, I hate you all, just start. but please start. If you've got someone young in your life, just yeah. again, they can't hear it, but please try and get them started for all of those reasons. It just makes such a big deal, such a huge difference. Just getting started. So, um, do yourself do yourself a favour and, and at least get on with that, and and also not only start but contribute as much as you you can afford to contribute because. Mm. Um, you know the, the the gains are made in the compounding, not in the saving per se. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the that's kind of the key. Can I add one more thing to yeah, it? I, I've I've done it recently because when you know we get the old the latest eviction notice, mm. you kind of do look at your your options and the rest of it. And again, not giving anything too personal away, but you do some of the sums, and it's like if everything was be sort of diverted to somewhere that we were really happy with and would love to live for the next thirty years or something mm. like mm. that. Given what we need to borrow, putting in some safe assumptions around buffers on interest yeah. rates and all the rest of it, we would retire having paid off the house at that point in time. Right. But that'd be the asset. That's it. Right? Yeah, that, yeah, that's exactly. what we own. Yes. Yes. And yes. and what you see, I can speak of this for people, friends and family that I know, certainly a lot of people around our area, where you have this class of people who are asset rich and income poor. Mm. Uh, my mother-in-law is a classic example. She lives in, rattles around in this huge house, <laughs> uh, you know, worth a squillion dollars, mm. but she doesn't have two cents to rub together. Yeah, right. You know, so she's even thinking, I'm talking her out of it, uh, believe <laughs> you me, of like reverse mortgages and that, that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, be, because, so it's sort of like the great thing about the liquidity that I would have in a uh, investment portfolio mm. is she can't sell the bathroom That's if she right. needs a bit of cash. Right, I, I can always sell down a little bit of shares and the rest of it, or even, even and, it creates its own dividend income a lot of the time too. So you have got that separately to yeah. the you yep. know need, need to sell something at all. If you're investing in yep. shares that have dividends, you don't sell it, touch a thing. It's yeah. Now the other side options. of it is the other side of it is she doesn't she doesn't pay rent, she doesn't yes. pay mortgage, she's yes. free and clear. Yep. So so that and that's a huge saving, which as I nice, said, right? Yeah, which yeah. is really nice. You know, an average rental in Sydney, as I said the other day, I think seven eight hundred bucks a week or something that, that, that mm-hmm. she doesn't spend. So that's part. It's all part of the calculus, mm-hmm. and and you can do the exercise yourself. And you, it'll all depend on the assumptions that you put in. My point is, is that you don't have to put in bold assumptions. You just use historical standards as assumptions, and it makes a pretty compelling case. If you're going to go down that route, just bear in mind that New South Wales, in particular, and Australia generally have very, very, very poor protections for inv- for renters and there's it sucks. <laughs> if we had European-style lease standards, a uh, mm-hmm. different story. Exactly, exactly. Um, I like that, mate. I think, um, and, and honestly, particularly the current rental deals, particularly in capital cities, particularly in Sydney, the return- 2% I mean, the, the, gross. The rent, right, we think about it, like the rent, the rent you pay has a proportion of the ownership cost. Is it's a it's a if you didn't if you didn't have to move regularly, which is the absolute trapdoor problem. Yep. Um, it's remarkably inexpensive to rent relative to owning the same property. To put it in the parlance of uh, commercial property, owners are getting a there's a two percent sort of cap rate on it. Yes, but what yes. I'm paying is relative to you. Know, it just it ends up being a, a better deal. I just mm, it's it's yeah. o- it's only the lifestyle impact to it and the stress impact. Correct, and, correct. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I dropped a fork on the floor or. The, handle fell off the drawer and now I'm going to have a fight with some idiot real estate aide. You know, it's, it's that kind of stuff that's going to send you insane. 
Uh, always anyway. honest, Andrew. I always appreciate your unvarnished honesty. PPA, thank you for the great <laughs> question. Hey, um, question from Adam. Now, he, he says, Hi, Scott and Ram. Love the pods. In fact, I'm, I really enjoy it when you guys talk macro. Makes me think about the impact that finance will have across society in the immediate and long-term future. Now, we talked about this a bit on Friday, but he says a question. If you both predict inflation will remain at about 5% for years to come, that means that any business or industry that doesn't get at least a 5% increase in pricing will essentially be getting a pay cut. I now see this as an opportunity to rebalance some industries that are struggling for staff and I did some of the hard yards during the pandemic, e.g. health and education. Do you both take this view on the ongoing inflation prediction and what effect will a below 5% or above 5% pay rise have on these sectors? Full on Adam. Now he's talking Big a question. bit about pay. He's talking about pay in those industries, I think, from the look of it. Mm. Um, so I, it's kind of one of those if then, if then conversations. He's kind mm. of saying, look, mm. there's some service industries and those service industries will be getting, in theory, a pay rise that somewhat approximates inflation eventually. But also with inflation's 5% as a separate kind of but, but related number, if you're not getting that, then you're going backwards. And there's both, I guess, investment returns, there's company margins that get compressed. If they've got price increases and they can't pass them on, um, what does it do for demand for those companies' products if there's ongoing inflation and they have to pass on those increases? Mm. So you've got a, a margin question, you've got a volume question, uh, and plenty of others besides. I so let's let's start at the beginning, mate. Just with his with his view. I'm gonna. You've said this before. You've made some comments, but let's just put a stake in the in the sand. Mm-hmm, End mm-hmm. of 2025. What's the inflation number in your view? 2025. End of 2025. Just go far enough out that we kind of get through whatever this tightening cycle looks like. I'd say above four percent. Above four percent. And is that as low as it gets for the foreseeable? Or does I, it keep I, I think I think we we'll, we've passed the these caveat. This but these are all just. Thumbs totally. up. So you were listening totally. to this in a year's time, it'll all be laughable. And it just is for every <laughs> yes. everyone who opines on this kind of stuff. So I'm yes. hyper aware of that. My running thesis, though, is that we probably have peaked. There's a, there a bunch of supply bottlenecks that sort of had mm. the um, impact of putting prices up. There's a whole other debate to be had there. And again, see, see my Twitter profile if you want to get in, <laughs> get in on, on that kind of stuff. But yeah, I, I think it settles. I think, it, I think the years of 2 to 3% mm. are probably gone particularly with a lot of onshoring, reshoring, so manufacturing moving mm-hmm. outside of China, uh, a lot of underinvestment in energy and uh, all these other kinds of things. I, I feel as though it'll probably run higher than it has historically, at least recent historic evidence would, would, would point to. Okay. And again, I did ask you that to, um, to, to tie it or number, but, it, but it's kind of implied in Adam's question that the extent to which we have to factor inflation in, because if it's 2% or 10%, I yeah. guess there's, there's, there's some... Um, so well, I, just just on that, so I think so. Mm. It's always interesting to chat about and have an opinion on. But mm. I think more generally, I, I play the uh, just in case kind of angle. You want to yeah. be whether we end up being two percent back at two percent or it's seven <laughs> percent or whatever. Mm. I want the kind of business that was touched on in the question that has pricing power mm. that can pass it on. Woolies is a good example here, right? So obviously they're going to face a lot of. Oh, sorry. Well, yeah, it's a great, it's a great example, but there's lots of examples. Well, there's not yeah. lots of there, there are there are <laughs> enough examples to certainly build a good portfolio with, mm-hmm. where where the, 
they will they will be fine um, overall because they can just they can just pass it straight through. What you don't want is a business that that has a real lack of pricing power. That is yeah. that is what's going to to hurt you in those scenarios. You also want a business that has pretty strong balance sheet, as, as we always say, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> doesn't have too much debt because generally if you are in a higher inflation rate environment, the central banks will be combating that with the only way they know how, which is higher interest yeah. rates as yeah. well. Yeah. So, you know, strong balance sheets and pricing power go a hell of a long way. And again, just to use the average as we touched on before, let's say that we do live in a 6% forever inflation mm. rate mm. world. That sucks. But long-term, and again, let's just, for the sake of argument, use a long-term average of 9% of the market. I'm still going ahead 3% in real terms each year. Is that as good as 9% in real terms? No, <laughs> it, 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 is, it is absolutely not, but mm. I'm still mm. moving forward. And this is why we always say cash is such a terrible, risky investment when you're looking at long-term uh, horizons, because you don't get that. You're going backwards in, in real terms. So, uh, yeah, yeah. I, what do you think? So I and yeah, and that's why I wanted to kind of get the the first thing out of the way first because I, I I completely agree with you in terms of you want pricing power. I think that's absolutely right. The degree to which maybe <laughs> it's a hard one, right? Because you were almost the Julia Gillard. I reject the premise of the question, mm. which I actually don't mind. Which is mm. it doesn't matter what inflation is as long as you buy the right businesses. Mm. And I think that's absolutely true if that's the approach we're taking. I think the where it matters more is, and this is why I mean about the rejecting the premise is, if you own businesses that are more susceptible, then you absolutely do have to have a view, because if you don't have a view, the market will make a decision for you. Mm. In the sense that if I had a business that couldn't pass on, here's my issue with, I'm going to, and by the way, some can pass on prices, but even still get smashed. I worry about Transurban, for example, right? Mm. Now, this is supposed to be, if you listen to the, the headlines, oh, tell me if I'm wrong, because I, I don't, <laughs> plenty of people think I'm wrong or at least not directly but but have a different view which is people say oh Transurban is great because it's priced to link to inflation right which is absolutely true so there is no inflation risk other than their costs are largely debt and that debt has been and probably will increase faster than inflation as a proportion of the company's expenses mm. right if your if your interest rate goes from 2% to 4% Remember, of course, most companies paying effectively interest-only loans. They don't pay back the principal. You've doubled your costs and your maybe your revenue goes up 7% in line with inflation. Mm-hmm. So you've got 7% increase in, co- in revenue and a 50% increase in costs. That's going to hurt your margins. Mm-hmm. So just being able to keep up with inflation isn't in and of itself enough. And to your point, Adam, your question, I'd be more worried about infrastructure companies with that problem, with lots and lots of debt, than I was with a high service industry issue for exactly that reason that yes, mm. your cost base might go up 5% if you've got a lot of staff. I'd rather that than a 50% increase. It might not be 50 for Transurban, by the way. So mm. don't don't quote me. I'm just throwing out some numbers for fun and for, for illustration. Yeah, a long maturity tail is to, right? to the balance. Right, and so, yeah. and so there's this So does it matter? Well, on one hand, you say, oh, Transurban's safe because it's linked to inflation. That's fine. Well, I think that might be... Am I wrong, mate, by the way? is that is Because other people say, oh, it's a great business in inflationary times. I'm Because of that debt load, I'm not sure. I haven't looked at it for years, but you're right. Okay. I mean, that, you, the, the, the approach you take is the right one. It's just where those lines cross over. Um, mm. It's a very big part of their debt. I know that they've got mature, like there's a bunch of debt that won't mature for five years and beyond. You know, so so it, de- it, it depends is, is, is the answer and exactly what that is. But yeah, mm. as a general rule, if there, mm. is, if there is consistently higher interest costs on that 
debt and that's not offset by enough growth at the top line right. even though that is being increased I mean, the, the lines just cross at some point i don't know yeah. i don't know yeah. where it is yeah but it's not bulletproof so anyway bot- bottom line Adam, i so to answer your question the way andrew did uh i i'm also i'm, I'm with that uh, andrew so i'm looking for pricing power anyway uh and i think you know inflation takes a bite out of everything it just does uh, and so the best you can do is try and find the best businesses in those environments. And generally speaking, those are in good times, you want business with pricing power because they increase their prices. And bad times, you want business with pricing power because they can increase their prices. Now, the upside may not be as good when inflation's high, but you better think going backwards or staying still. Uh, and it's even better in good times when inflation is low because you get even more upside. So in either scenario, if you own the best businesses, you're probably in the best position is my personal view. And I, and I would actually say it's probably independent of cost basis. I mean, we talked about uh, rents on Friday's episode about rents going up you know, so much. And, and my view, like, wow, that's a lot. Is there pricing power in rentals? Well, c- kind of, but only because the costs go up. But as long as costs go up for everybody, then you're in the same sort of market environment. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do, do, I, do I love that service businesses have a, a high cost base in terms of wages going up? Not really, because it potentially compresses margins. But if those companies have pricing power, it's not so much an issue. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be focused on the cost line in isolation, i.e. which company is most exposed to rising costs, I would, as Andrew says, look at which businesses have the ability to pass on those costs with higher price. And it seems relatively straightforward, but I hope hope that makes a bit, a bit of sense as well. It's also, uh, I think you should always do this, but it's a good reminder to look at what they call the unit economics of a business. Yeah. So, which is just like on each transaction, forget all the fixed costs, everything else with the business, but you know, I buy my raw materials for X, cost me so much and then I sell it for that. What, is, what does that look like? I, as a business, can be running at, a, mm-hmm. at an overall loss just because of my general and administrative costs and other things like that. But I've got a certain infrastructure and machinery there to sort of support the business. But if the unit economics are attractive and you can be confident in an overall forward trajectory in sales, again, those lines cross over at some point and things start to get very exciting as you unleash what they call operating leverage in the business yeah, scales yeah. effectively. But, but the truth is, is that if the unit economics are bad, no amount of top line growth is going to save you. I mean, if, if you're if you're, if you're a iron ore miner and you're digging it out of the ground for twenty dollars a ton and you're selling it for fifteen dollars a ton, mm. well, you triple the amount that you're selling. You're just you're just increasing your loss. You want you want something where the individual gross margins are sort of attractive. There's a bit of a buffer there. There's a little bit of a wiggle room. It's just an important it's a, an important thing to note. Interestingly enough, a lot of the successful tech companies back in the day ran at terrible gross margins and unit mm. economics. For the very point, and it does it in some cases that's been validated because what you do is like Uber, right? You come in and you run at a ridiculous, and this is the bare thesis for Uber, which was you run you run at a loss on a unit economic basis, but that's just the strategic cost of mm. capturing the market. And then once you've captured the market, you you fix that problem. By the way, what happened with Uber? They, do you remember the early days? You'd get in, there'd be a cold bottle of water and a Mentos waiting for you. It was immaculate. You'd have these great so chats. With the, now now yeah. they're just taxis. They're just yeah. taxis and they're much more expensive than they, yeah. they, they were. Yeah. So there is, there is a sense to uh, poor unit economics if there is a strategic mm-hmm. angle and you're confident of it. You just want to make sure that they can sort of correct things at, at the end of the day. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully something helpful to, to also look at. Yep, I like that, mate. Really, really nice way to put it. Um, 
Growth, of course, does also cover a whole lot of problems. Yes. So yep. if, you, if you can find a way to grow, you can potentially bring some benefit to scale to offset some of those costs. But again, it's one of those, understand the business specifically. Don't be too generic in the way you apply uh, some of these some of these things. Yep. Hey, um, question from, from Jackson. He says, hi, Scott. Question for the pod. Hi, Scott and Ram. I appreciate the podcast. I'm an 18-year-old uni student. And I've been investing for 18 odd months. I'm thankful for the time and effort you guys have put in, guiding me in the right direction. My question is in regards to metrics like ROE, ROA, ROIC, and also the quotes incremental versions of them. Let's break that down very quickly. ROE, return on equity, that is the the shareholder's equity on the balance sheet on a company. Net assets. Return return on assets is just the asset line. So ignoring any of the debt and shareholder's equity, just how many, what what are the assets of the business and what return are you getting for putting those assets to work? Return on invested capital isn't a, I was going to say bastard, that's not true. It's it's just a a slightly different version of basically adding together uh, the assets and the debt, calling it invested capital and then working on that. And then incremental is basically the extra return you get each year for keeping some of that money. So um, if you get a return on equity this year and you keep some of that money, next year, what's the extra equity you put in and what's the extra, the extra return you get from that extra money? So look at the incremental equity or the incremental assets or the incremental invested capital. Compare that with the incremental profit generated and whether or not that's giving you a good return. So that's just mm. a really quick summary. Being a more small cap investor, says Jackson, generally into pre and borderline profit companies, I don't use any of these metrics as a great decision maker. But sometimes I glance at them for a bit of an indication. I hear some fund managers go on about how a company is high quality due to having an ROE over a certain threshold. I can't help... uh, Where am I? I've lost my line. Uh, I can't help but think these metrics carry great subjectivity Mm. and a lot more nuance is needed to determine if a company has good capital management. If a random software company, he says, has some huge capex spend improving their product and their intellectual property... That isn't going to show up in the PL in the same year, but in the future. For a metric like return on equity, companies with a weaker balance sheet will always show better return on equity due to the fact they have more liabilities to assets, meaning less equity. For reasons like this, I don't tend to use the metrics for investment decisions, but I try to better understand the working capital requirements or how that capex is going to improve or affect a company going forward. I don't think these plant metrics are always good indicators. I know I brushed through a lot there, but would like to hear what about how you guys think about it in terms of these small companies. And please poke holes in my views. Thanks, Jackson. Uh, he's for an eighteen-year-old uni student, mate. I don't mean that anyway negatively. He's uh, he's understood a whole lot in the in the very short eighteen months he's been investing. Man, I was a lot older when I figured all that out. <laughs> yeah, that, so, that's so, so impressive. Yeah. So there are a whole lot of acronym jockeys. And frankly, mm-hmm. a whole lot of successful acronym jockeys mm-hmm. who use these, love these, and done really, really well. There's a whole lot of people who put them aside and say, "Nah, not for me." Um, give us the give us the pros and cons, mate. Give us the give us the good side of the street on both these both these approaches. Yeah, I mean, the numbers tell you a lot, right? I mean, they tell you what happened. There's the first mm-hmm. thing. So again, they're looking backwards, but you know, there's companies that have form tend to keep form. We were talking about this the other day as well. So if you see a business that I mean, all of whether, whatever chosen metric you want to do, it's just an effort mm. to a ratio. I should say it's an effort to to standardize something. It doesn't really matter to mm. say that I made ten million dollars profit and your <laughs> business made ten million dollars profit. Mm. If you did it by just putting a hundred grand in in startup capital, and I had to invest ten trillion dollars to get that, I mean, it's, they're very different things. So it just allows us to sort of have a more apples with apples comparison. So they right. they can be quite useful. 
Um, but you're right. There's a lot of nuance in them and one figure is never going to tell you everything you need to know. And there's all kinds of caveats with it. The ROE one was a great point that Jackson made there. It's just like, it just means that the higher the leverage I get, the higher the, the, the obviously the, the, the better the return is, is going to look. But- yep. I've also got higher leverage, which comes with risks and stuff as, as well. Let me, so, let me just break that down, Matt, quickly, because for people who don't necessarily get the metrics arbitrarily, let's think about investing in property. Mm-hmm. If you were to buy a million dollar property with a hundred grand and the property goes- uh, and, So and hundred get, grand deposit, $900,000 right. loan. Yep. All right. And, and you get a 50 grand a year in rent. Let's just, let's just make those numbers up, right? Mm-hmm. That'd be a 5% yield on the, on the purchase price, million dollar property, 50 grand a year, rent 5%, right? That's, that's okay. It's pretty good, in fact, in the current market. Seems, on your cash good. though- on the equity you put in, you're going to get 50 grand rent on $100,000 of equity. That's a 50% yeah. return. Minus a bit of interest. Minus a bit of interest, but still, right? Like, uh, yeah, what, just, what an incredible stick, return. Stick with me, stick with me. Yeah. Uh, but yes, you're right, of course. There's, and so, but, you know, the, the, but to your point, mate, so, so great ROE. Return on assets, 5% because you've got a million dollar asset. Return on equity, 50% looks great. If you keep that up and the property goes up in value and the rent goes up and you say, wow, what an amazing quality asset, that's great. If at some point the rent falls in half because no one wants to live there anymore, all of a sudden you've got that problem. And or if the asset value is to fall, the return on assets, if they, and we see this all the time, companies write down their assets. You hear about um, AGL during the week, I think it was, took mm. a $1.1 billion write down on the assets they've got. So you think you've got a million dollar asset. All of a sudden, if you've got a half a million dollar asset, not only does your return fall because your profit falls, but you've actually then you're in negative you've got negative assets right you actually you've actually lost a whole lot of money which doesn't show up in those metrics no it doesn't and then oh, there's a whole bunch of stuff to unpack thank you thank you for letting me just i just want to i just want to, for those yeah. who aren't familiar with the statements I just want to kind of give a concrete example to give people a sense of why those things can be useful but why they also can be misleading so jackson's on the right track and this is the key point here is that so we're not going to do it any justice um verbally <laughs> here but you know jump onto investopedia google it mm-hmm. these these are metrics that are worth knowing and understanding at least in terms of what they mm-hmm. mean i think the problem that some investors make is they just rely entirely on them mm-hmm. and i think you've got to ask yourself the question sort of behind uh, why what what's sort of driving uh, that did 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 equity drop or did the did the profit increase? You know exactly what what's going on here to explain all of this, and to also understand that while things can make certain metrics look better, what is the op- not the opportunity cost? What's the risk of doing that? Your example with the property, if that property dropped ten percent, like ten percent is not a huge fall in the grand scheme of things. Certainly yeah. not for small cap investors, <laughs> but your 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 equity yeah. is wiped yeah. out. Yes, you're zero. You've you've you put in a hundred grand, and if you were to sell it today, you've lost. Every, you've lost 100%. Yeah. So these things- grand, you sell it, you've got nothing. You've literally torched 100 grand, yep. yep. And, and then you still had to pay interest and transaction yes. costs along the way. It's, it, it was a terrible, terrible you experience. You actually use property as an investment. Andrew's getting way too <laughs> excited about people losing money. But it's, it's, a, good, it's a good point <laughs> though, in, in just that these, they, they tell Powerful a story they t- of what happened, not what will happen, but what, what happened. And they all fit together. So I think you very much take a holistic approach to all of it. You sort of look at all in context, mm. read a bit about the detail that's, that's, that's sort of behind it and then, and then form your judgment. Mm. So, you know, don't throw them all out the door um, and don't rely on them entirely, but, but certainly have a look and understand the, the nuance and, and stuff involved. It's probably not very practically helpful what I just said because you still have to sort of go off and do, do a little bit of the work, but it's worth, it's worth, mm. it's worth knowing. Doctors know about blood pressure and other things because, 
you know, blood pressure is not going to diagnose an illness, but right, it's going to exactly. help point you in the right direction. As, there, there's, as, there are some health indicators that generally speaking give you a sense of how well something's going. Not going to yep. diagnose a problem. Not going to mean they're not going to die tomorrow or going to live forever, but there's some, there's some sense of, hey, there might be some, something to look at here. We talked to some of those companies on Thursday, you know, mm. the Nick Scarleys of this world, yeah. the yeah. ProMedicas, whatever, and they've just, when you see a company and you bring it up on Comsec or Yahoo Finance or whatever it happens to be, and you see, wow, over the last 10 years, their return on equity has been above 30% mm. and they're very conservatively geared. You kind of think, hell, well, that doesn't guarantee anything, but yes, yes, I'll note that. that that's interesting. There's something, something, there is some secret source to that business that has enabled them to do that. And while it's no guarantee of the future, if I had to make a choice between two identical businesses that looked about the same today, but yep. one has 10 years under its belt of just you know, demonstrating you know, factually exactly what it's been capable of and the other one hasn't, I'm going to weight the, other, the, the former much more heavily. Yeah, a series of green flags and red flags. Um, yep. I, Jackson, I, I, I don't use any of these as decision-making tools, but they are indicative of something potentially going on in a business. That's a nice way to shortcut yourself to better questions. It's probably the better way to put it. So rather decisions, it gives you an indication as to which questions to then ask. Mm. High ROE with a truckload of debt, know what you're buying. Mm. Now, Transurban, we talked about that before in a different context, but mm. you know, it's, for all, it's, it's debt costs might go all over the joint, but it's not going anywhere. We're going to use toll roads forever until we invent flying cars. And so you know, the, the return on equity, if that debt is, is a reasonable size, can be easily serviced, blah, 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 tells you something about that business. Mm. But it has a lot of debt, so you want to be mindful of that. Uh, other businesses that have lower ROEs but zero debt might actually be better businesses, right? Now, the, we and this Andrew mentioned this on Friday about the way people think about companies, right? In the good times, everyone wants these hyper-leveraged businesses because you want to take advantage of the good times and, and get the best possible return on your cash. In the bad times, everyone says, why don't you have more cash? Why do you have much debt? What's going on? And so you've got to be really careful not to be seduced into maximizing the upside at the risk of, frankly, maximizing the potential downside. Because that's what leverage mm. does. And that's Andrew's mm. point right through this conversation. So I love high ROE businesses as a rule. If you're looking for a relatively mature business, that's you, you want it to be growing, by the way, because again, ROE is fine, but if it's not growing, it's not growing. Um, now, you said you look at pre-profit or just break-even companies. They are useless to you, and that's completely fine. As long as you know what you're using metric-wise to make sure you're doing well in that small cap space. It can be really, really profitable. Andrew's talked about his small cap focus before. Uh, but you need to know, if you're going to eschew those things, they're, they're really nice. Honestly, the, the better the ROE, the better the ROA, the better the ROIC, the, the, the higher quality the business is. Almost, 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 mm. almost particularly together. Mm. Um, you know, I won't say without exception, but you know, in the vast, vast bulk of cases. And that's a really good thing, Right. But if you're looking at small cap land, you're not going to get those. Now, hopefully you're getting better returns because you're happy to do more work. But giving up that certainty that, that, I mean, if you haven't got a profit, you can't have a return on anything because there's no return, right? Mm. Now, some people listening to this are saying, I'm never, ever going to touch a loss-making company. That's too risky for me. Others are going to say, I'm never going to buy big, mature, slow group businesses because I want more than 3% return a year. So I'm going to look for small cap companies, take more risk. It just does come down, honestly, to knowing how you invest and then what metrics are important for your style of investing. 
If you're looking for blue chips and you're not looking at ROE and ROI, I'm, I'm probably going to tell you you're missing a trick because mm. there are some rubbish blue chip companies, uh, yep. big companies, because, you know, and there's some really big ones that have returns on equity of 5 and 6%. I mean, it's less than the cost of capital. It's, it's it, mm. you know, it's not exactly a waste of time, but it's pretty bloody close. Mm. Now, there are some small companies with great ROEs that are going to go broke next year. And there's lots in between. There's, you know, businesses that will never make a profit and some that are loss making. That will be the next Amazon. And mm. so that combination is just really, really worth knowing. Yeah. But you're on, the right, you're on the right track, mate. And look, 18, 18 years old and 18 months in, uh, you're in a spectacularly good position. Yeah. I, why, why things, um, just a, a little bit further on that, things mm. like return on invested capital mm. and mm. return on incre- incremental return on in- equity are really interesting and attractive if you can find it. Because again, mm. what you want with a company, the best investments are compounding machines. So it's not, let's say I've got this incredible business and uh, each year it throws off a million dollars in profit. Well, that's fantastic. But let's say the business is the business, there's nothing else I can do to sort of grow it. In which case, it's just like, I should just take that million dollars and pay it out as dividends to, to all my shareholders. And they'll be very happy with that and the market will price that asset however it sees fit for that reliability of, of, of the income. But imagine I had a business that for every dollar I kept, I could turn it into $2 because I've just got such a long investment runway and opportunity here. I've got a great product. Gosh, if I opened up, I'm selling this much now. If I add another factory, I could sell twice as much. And for every dollar I invest, I can can realistically expect a 20 or 30% return. Those kinds of businesses are compounding machines because they make money and rather than give it to you, they keep it and they get a 30% return on it and then they make more money and then they get a 30% return on that. So mm. businesses able to reinvest and compound for long periods of time. You look at any of the hyper successful businesses, that's what they that's what they share in, in common, an ability to retain, uh, to earn high rates of return on retained mm. cash. That's why Buffett has never paid a dividend. Yes. That's that's it. and he says he's just point blank. That's why I don't leave it with me. I'm, I've gotten twenty percent over fifty five years. Uh, I can pay you out a dividend, and then maybe you can try and do the same. Or leave it with me. And 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 when there ever that opportunity exists, and these some of these ratios will will give you the 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 sense of how good they are at doing it. Mm. Hang on for dear life, because they, those companies end up growing very very rapidly. Great great question, my great great answer too. Love it. Thank you, Jackson. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, next question comes from Michael. This is Hi, Scott and Ram. Oh, back to macro. Here we go. I've got a question that feels like a stupid one, but I know you both like stupid questions, so I'd love to throw it out there. We do. Uh, We've got stupid answers too. Exactly. I hear so much about how practically every developed nation is swimming in debt. In some cases, it can put an entire country at risk of going bankrupt. My question is, who do they owe the money to? Is there some unified global bank they all borrow from? Are all these countries borrowing from each other? Is Australia a customer of the big four banks? Or are they shooting for a better deal at Westpac? Not sponsored in brackets. Thanks, <laughs> and keep up the amazing work from Michael. This is a great question, I mate. I love this. Oh, man, there's so many, so many different rip- places to go with this. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, the US is now, its debt is 120% of its GDP. I think it's the highest mm. ever since World War One, or so. You have to go back 100 years or something for that. So you've got a situation now where their interest bill is one of the biggest expense items for the federal government, right? This is this is by the way, this is why interest rates will roll over eventually. They have to. It's just maths, right? Like 
you 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 will you potentially bankrupt the government. So they have to they have to raise more money to pay off the debt. So these mm. debt matures at some point. You pay the bondholders back. I'll come to who they are in a moment. Um, uh, but then then you'll be issuing bonds at higher rates of interest, and it just it it. And if the market's not willing to buy those for whatever reason, it's worried about inflation or not for the US, I don't think anyone's seriously considering a default anytime soon. Um, but they will de- they will demand more compensation for that and they'd probably be less demand. And so what happens? The Fed comes in and buys buys it for them. So they, they create money out of thin air yeah. and then they buy the debt. <laughs> and that's uh, whether or not you think that's a good idea. Uh, I don't know if it is structurally, but that's that's what's happened. So who who owes all the money? Uh, who who owes all? Sorry, who owns all of the debt? Who has who's holding these these bits of paper? Well, ultimately, we are. You know, they're they're pension funds. They're big. In, they're um, sovereign funds. They're fund managers. They're private investors. It's people. You know, they sell it to the public through various structures and through various institutions. But it's all of us. It's like when the GFC happened and that we're so worried about because people, you know, a nurse or a fiery had been working for the last 20 years, had their life savings all touched, uh, connected to all of all of this kind of stuff. So, so we owe it. So we do it because we think, well, one, there's not a lot of alternatives around. And two, we have faith that the US government, I talk about them because they're the biggest, they're the gorilla in the room. They're the, they're the largest, <laughs> most liquid capital market in the world. Mm. We think, well, I will get my money back. I'm, I'm guaranteed to because I know that even if they don't have the money, they'll just print the money. So I, 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 will, I will get it back. And this, this is one of the huge advantages of being the global reserve currency, by the way. So, <laughs> so if that all makes you scratch your head and then, yeah, but surely you just can't keep printing money forever to do that. I would say, yes, you are right. <laughs> and that's the big, that's the, that's the huge long-term debate ongoing in, in macro. Can, can they do that forever? And, and again, it's just math. So they, they either structurally get back into surplus uh, or they inflate the debt away massively uh, or they default. Basically, three big options there. Yeah. There's a fourth, which is you kind of run slowly growing debt piles for extended periods of time, which is a percentage of the GDP are manageable. Is is the only other thing I'd add? Yeah. There's a two B or a three B or whatever that, whichever one that was, which is I mean, we, sustainable it, under some under some version of the future. It's like we're talking about with houses. There's nothing wrong with a mortgage. There's nothing yeah. wrong with taking on debt to buy a house. You want yeah. to borrow, you know, seventy percent. I mean, that's perfectly prudent. But the higher that that goes the more risky it becomes. So although you will get the nominal value of your bond back on maturity, whether or not those dollars buy the same amount is a factor. I think that's why we're seeing inverted yield curves and stuff at the moment. People is like, well, I know I'll get my money back, but what I want to get is my purchasing power back. That's what I want to get back. And the more uncertain I am about that, the higher the yield I will demand in, because that's inverted, the lower the bond price I will be prepared to pay. And at a certain... Get this, Japan, Japan's central bank owns 90% of the government debt. Mm. So the government says we don't have enough money. They issue these yen-backed bonds and the central bank of Japan buys it. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's wild stuff. And when you start pulling at that thread and picking at it, it'll take you to all kinds of weird, wacky <laughs> places. And I, I, don't, I honestly don't think, I wouldn't have the anywhere near the amount of hubris required to say this is exactly how it all plays out. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's enough to sort of, and, and by the way, you can be perfectly legitimate and ultimately correct in, in certain bearish scenarios, but it might take 30 years to play out at the same time. So it, it, 
it's something that is a concern and I don't have any good answers as to how they do it. I, I feel as though it, it's probably going to be a little bit of pain. Yeah, so I don't necessarily disagree with most of that, mate. Um, back to back to, to Michael's question, they're just kind of trying to narrow it back down. I think, Michael, the answer, generally speaking, is either the central banks, as Andrew's talked about, or so the bond market. We, we, we think about shares a lot. We talk about shares a lot, and most of the financial world does too in terms of what we see in public discourse. But the bond market is and has always been multiples of the size of the share market. The amount of global oh, many debt multiples, has yes. always dwarfed the size of the share market. We don't talk about it very often, and we don't because it's not well. It's not particularly investable for individual investors. And to Andrew's point, the people who own that debt generally are people who want, in theory, lower risk. And again, Andrew's mentioned the risks of default, so maybe maybe the maybe lower risk is is only ever relative, uh, but lower risk assets for lower returns if you own debt issued by the u.s government you're a very 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 good chance of getting paid back now as andrew said maybe you don't get your purchasing power back it's a whole different thing but you're gonna get your money back right so you know you know we talk about property what's the chance of losing money on property same thing with shares what's the chance of losing money on shares every year probably more than half of shares actually go backwards um now the market goes up over time that's because generally the biggest companies go up and, and others go down um but most years i'm pretty sure i'm right in saying mate that um the average company actually loses value in terms mm. of numerically not not weighted for market cap so oh, yeah so if you're if you're an investor and you want a stable return with a regular income yield if you're in your big pension fund your soft wealth fund you're a family office you're a whatever you're going to buy bonds government bonds or maybe corporate bonds so if you know uh, apple wants to raise money it goes to the bond market and says who wants to buy apple's bonds corporate bonds with the same kind of idea we'll pay you back in x year's time we'll give you this interest rate in the meantime they call it bond yield but same idea um that's what happens and so the the there's not only is there questions about government there's also questions and this gets back to our my socialist uh, allegations made against me um <laughs> it goes back to you know who owns what assets right so the government has to pay interest that's all of us, to individuals and corporates and groups who own that debt and who are making money from that government debt. Now, they have to make money or they wouldn't lend it to the government so that it exists for a reason. Uh, and it's not a bad thing to have because you want the government wants to raise capital and there are people out there with money who are saying, well, I've got a billion dollars in the back pocket. I can lend it to you if you want to borrow it. Sure, I want to return. The government says, okay, fine, we want the money. That's kind of how it works. But remembering, of course, that over time, those bondholders who get the money and then the the interest and the repayment are getting paid by the rest of us to facilitate that flow again i don't think it's a bad thing inflation is real uh you know the, the projects that the money's being used for are real these things are important so when we say the world is swimming there it is the world is also swimming in surplus <laughs> which is the private investors who are lending that money to those governments so there's there's both sides of that transaction and of course there's the central banks as andrew mentioned which is a whole different relatively new thing not not entirely new but relatively new so you've got those three different bits and pieces going at any one point in time central banks own a lot of debt uh, individual well, i say individual investors i just mean the private sector whether it's again uh, sovereign wealth funds pension funds superannuation funds uh, managed funds all that kind of stuff Every, everyone listening funds. has exposure to u.s treasuries i guarantee right. you, you do through your super fund super, or something yep, like yep. that so, so you think oh yeah but i don't invest yeah. in that it doesn't yeah. matter yeah right, it does exactly. you, you've you've got money in it i almost can guarantee it 
so so those things so that, that's where the money that's who owns the debt um and it's always been it's always been thus it's always been the case there is that idea of you know simply governments borrow from someone who can provide uh, way back to when, when the uk government issued the first they call them gilts over there because they were gilt edged literally gold edged mm. uh bonds physical pieces of paper yeah. and those gilts were were issued by the uk government to fund wars they went to the, bonds. The, the yeah right they went to the expensive mm. the, the the wealthy landowners and said hey we got to go and fight France. Can you if, you, if you give us some money so we can buy some guns and bombs and arrows and ships yeah. and whatever, we'll when we get the repayment when we win the war. When we win the war, yeah. Right. If we win the war, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, and yeah. So, and that, so that's how that's how the whole thing started. And then all of a sudden, we want to run deficits, so we do that. I have been very vocal and very busy on Twitter the last week or so, um, talking about the fact that we have. Uh, the, the biggest the biggest challenge and Andrew's point about increasing debt. Um, Michael, what I assume is partly behind your own thought. Um, we, you know, governments are running debt because we've they've been allowed to. And I love Keynesian economics. I love the idea of stimulating a, a depressed economy. I love the idea of of uh, softening an overheating economy. And Keynesian economics does that wonderfully. Monetary policy does that as well. There's a whole different discussion on both. It's a whole other things. discussion. I'll have right. a slightly different view on. But yes, continue. Okay. Um, but uh, but over time. The idea of making debt bigger and bigger and making it worse and worse over time, I think, is is largely unsustainable because, as Andrew says, you either inflate out of it or you try and keep it to a reasonable level or you pay it back. And I think it's maths. I, it's I think, maths. Right. So, <laughs> right. so a, responsible, a responsible government should, in my view, run a structurally balanced budget over the cycle. Not every year. Um, because there is there are social benefits of the Keynesian deficits and then social benefits, frankly, of the, of the surpluses. Um, if you listen to some people, they say they only want deficits because surpluses are bad, they take money out, but we want more deficits. Like, well, you can't have one with the other. Again, to Andrew's point about math, that's probably what happens, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, but, but over time, you know, part of the inflationary problem right now is that, well, I won't rant about this too much, but if, if, if fiscal policies had worked properly over the last two or three years, We'd be running a big government budget surplus right now because mm. unemployment's at 40-year at lows. Uh, commodity prices are at really high levels. I'm pretty sure corporate incomes, so company profits, are basically at close enough to all-time highs, certainly in dollar, dollar mm. terms. Mm. In that sort of situation, and, and because, by the way, we're all working and very few of us are unemployed, income taxes are also through the roof. Now, add all that together, and if governments were responsible, we'd be running big surpluses right now. If we were running big surpluses, what would happen? Well, there'd be less money being spent in the economy that would actually restrict the growth in demand, right? That's that's how, and what would that do? That would put less pressure on the Reserve Bank to increase rates to deal with that. On the flip side, as I said, when things are tough, then we run big deficits. That helps to cushion the blow. Um, deficits, by the way, are just simply a result of things like less tax revenue and more welfare payments. Just, it's, it's just- Falling, falling commodity prices. Right, right. Yeah. So they call them automatic stabilizers, what happens? Um, but if you, but structurally, that means you run the deficits in the bad times, surplus in the good times. They offset each other over the cycle. They don't cause too much financial stress. They don't cause massive indebtedness. They don't potentially run the risk of, as Andrew says, not be able to afford the interest repayments at some point. But it just, it just makes logical sense, right? But yeah, just, it, was, it was orthodoxy until about 10 years ago. Hmm. And all of a sudden, governments started they could run deficits forever and who would care? And, you know, uh, no one, n- none of the parties are prepared, and God, this is global, not just local, prepared to actually say, I'm going to be the bad guy. I'm going to take some money out here because we need to. Mm. And that's why the Reserve Bank's been left to do all the work. 
A couple of quick points. It's such Shoot. I love this. I love it's such an interesting uh, <laughs> area it's here. Yeah. It's 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 you really un- realize how little you understand about how the world works <laughs> until you start digging into this stuff, and then it's mm-hmm. one of those things you dig into, and it's just sort of like it just throws up more questions than answers. It's very complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of points I would I would make when you if you were to list every country in the world and over any different century or whatever. The amount of times that governments have defaulted far, far and exceed the times that they haven't. So in other words, yeah. statistically, that's the norm. That's the norm. And it always, there's always, history doesn't exactly repeat, but it does rhyme. And it always, it always just goes from over indebtedness and poor investments, you know, wasted on futile wars and you know, flights of fancy and all of these kinds, kinds of things. So it hasn't happened uh, to Australia. Uh, it hasn't happened to the US, at least not in modern times. And um, and that's a good thing. But again, it does reach a point where there's this, these all of these actions have consequence. Another little factoid that's interesting is that there is something mm. like three to four times the amount of debt in the world than there is money in the world. Right, right. So if every debt holder said right now, I want my money back, yeah. it's a game of musical chess. It's like, yeah. well, there's, there's no, it's not like, oh, there's a little bit of a mismatch. It's like, it's not even close. Uh, and, and that's, again, it, it's, not, it's not automatically bad. It's a question of degrees. <laughs> Australia actually has, because of our incredible good luck and good fortune of where we are and the assets and stuff that we have, our debt to GDP is like 30 or 40%. It's gone up a lot, but from a very low base. But we're we're okay, and then at a certain level, it's it's perfectly reasonable and even perhaps desirable. Mm. And we can have an argument: is it 120 percent that it's get, we should start worrying? Is it 200 percent where we start to freak out? Or 300 percent before I need to worry? Like I don't know. I don't know where that exact line in the sand is. But I do. There was a great book called um, "This Time It's Different" by Rogoff <laughs> and uh, someone else, and they they went through this this exact analysis. I think the the one of the takeaways from the book was there's no country in history that has ever avoided default once it got above 100% debt to GDP or something. Or maybe there's like two exceptions. So, you know, hang on to your hats. <laughs> it's going to be a wild couple of decades, I think, unless, unless... And by the way, it doesn't mean that we're all bombed out living in craters. It just could be mm. a very extended period of, of stagnation and, and the rest mm. of it. We're still fed and housed and that, but it might, you know, it. I don't know. Again, I just fall back on maths. It, it is one of those three scenarios we painted out has to happen. Yeah. And yeah. we'll find out what it is. And you know, I'll just say very quickly, I'm very impressed I answered all of that. I didn't even mention the word Bitcoin once. Oh, I knew you were going to some point. Yeah. I knew you were worried. <laughs> I knew you were worried. But I just made, I'm not oh, going well. to. I just wanted to make that point. It's, um, yes. <laughs> you throw me entirely now. I, uh, credit, credit where it's due. Come on, you know that's hard for me not to. It's not very to well done. Well done. Yeah. Okay, credit. Um, yeah, I, 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 I mean, I'm only going to repeat the point I made before. Is I don't think it has to come crumbling down. There are there are ways of managing a, a given amount of debt mm. over over time. Particularly the percentage of output, for example, the mortgage example is a good one. Um, you know, you don't have to ever pay the mortgage off. I mean, people don't pay rent. It's almost, it's almost kind of versions of the same thing mm. uh, until it gets too big to be manageable. I think that for me, that's the big. Watch out! I'm I'm not sure what that point is. I don't, there is an objective answer to that question. Well, no. not in hindsight, oops, yeah. we shouldn't have crossed that line. You know yeah. that that, w- that was problematic. Um, but but I think you know if I if I have one, um, I think it's irresponsible of governments to put us nationally and globally in a position where 
we have run increased risks of some of those negative outcomes. Put it put it that way. And, and yeah. maybe that's me being maybe I'm just uh, I'm just being gilding the lily or, or trying to try trying to imagine a, a better scenario than maybe Andrew's pointing. But to me, it's it's that that bit of just saying, hey, because these things are possible. Because these things are maybe even likely, depending on where we go, but it doesn't even, you don't even have, this is a bit, we talk about predictions and, and preparations. That was yeah. it earlier today or, like, or Friday. And, and the same kind of idea of like, look, probably, it's probably okay. But given what we're dealing with, given the consequences, and given we have it in our, in our, within our grasp, within our control, to actually not put ourselves in incremental danger mm. i reckon it probably just makes sense let's just pull back just a little bit let's let's just you know let's not get to the point where we actually find out yeah it just it just makes absolutely no sense if you're running a government if you're running a an instrumentality you kind of that, that's a, that's a starting point right oh yeah 100 100 percent. it is i mean there's i'm trying to think of the saying it's like good times make soft men soft time makes strong men you know it's right, an old right. saying so it's very gendered but the idea being is that we came out we the great depression is the go-to example here right it was mm. very it was like that's kind of when people think economically what's the worst case scenario that's mm. that's yeah. what we kind of envisage yes yeah. and it was horrible i mean let's not let's not uh, uh, gloss over the fact a lot of a lot of misery was caused it was it was horrible for a, for a lot of people yep. but it bred a generation of very prudent financial operators and and the the post depression period ushered in what the, many in the US consider it to be its golden age so sometimes you need a bit of a hard reset um you know and the the other observation i would make is that these things the way they play out it's not a sine curve you know mm. it tends to be the gradually than suddenly thing the US gilt market debacle from what month or something ago is a good example of that it kind of all bubbles along and then all of a sudden things fall out of bed that was the gfc right, yeah. that was every crisis that you think about so it's not yeah, like yeah. you know you you and it comes back to your point of just sort of being prepared not not predicting it's like i don't know when it is because when it when it does happen or if right it does point, happen yeah. <laughs> people think oh i'll worry about it when it happens like well when it's happened it's happened you know maybe yeah. maybe you can avoid some further falls but you're going to get knocked around i, I would just mm. much rather put myself as best i can at least in a position where any of these events isn't going to wipe me out. I'll live to fight another day. Surviving is is ninety percent of the skill when it comes to investing. Because if you can do that, and sooner or later mm, compounding mm, will just mm. do its thing. But yeah, yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a fascinating fascinating thing to watch. If not, a bit it scary. is. It is indeed. It is indeed. Um, yeah. I, yeah. I, there's so, there's so many places to go oh, with it, isn't there? You I know? just I just want to I just want to my my I guess my point is that. And I'm not repeating myself, really, but my, my frustration with the inability and unwillingness of our elected and appointed leaders to just de-risk stuff drives mm. me slightly bananas. Yeah, um, it's it, it's and frankly, yes, we'll talk about housing. We'll talk about the the budget. You know, so many of these things. You know, the the unwillingness to make the hard decisions when again, may, maybe your maybe your concerns made up pie in the sky, never going to happen, mm. alarmist rubbish. Right? They're probably yeah. not, but let's assume they are. Okay, well then, they probably not going to happen. But mm -hmm. what what odds would you if you if you're in charge of if you're in charge of Australia Inc. If this was a family company, mm -hmm. and someone said to you, look, Andrew, the way we're running the place, there's a one percent chance the whole thing blows up and the kids are the kids are going to be on the street, mm. and you kind of go, yeah, I think we should do that. Mm. You know, you, you you would say, well, actually, oh, that sounds bad. Um, how can we make it better? Well, all you need to do is pull your horns in by one percent a year, mm. and just save a bit more of that cash and pay down some of this debt and. 
well, that seems pretty reasonable. I mean, I don't need the, I don't need the 48th bowl of caviar. I can put that aside and, and maybe put that towards actually paying down some of the debt, just making sure that I don't put the, the kids and the family company at risk. Mm. That seems smart to me. Mm. You know, it's just, it just the, the trade-off here, the probabilities might be small, but the, 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 the potential size of the outcome. So a 1% chance of catast- absolute catastrophe. Mm-hmm. You know, we've, I, I've used the example before, and we had even listeners mention it. You know, if I, if I got to play Russian roulette and I had a bullet in one of 100 chambers, mm-hmm. I wouldn't pull the trigger no matter how much you offered me. Because I'm probably not going to die, yeah. but if I do, it's freaking catastrophic, right? Yeah. So yeah. you're going to go, okay, well, I'm not going to do that. And and the cost of, of not playing the game, the cost of actually taking the bullet out of the chamber, mm. it's relatively small compared to the risk of actually ending my life because I'm stupid. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, it just makes no sense to me that governments of any stripe, of any color, of any persuasion aren't all on some sort of unity ticket of, let's actually de-risk this thing because that probably mm-hmm. makes sense. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 100%. And then there's the whole other angle of it's not just the amount of debt that there is, but what it's being used for. You know, there's some really well, good true. things, that nation-building things that just have incredible paybacks. Oh, it's probably the, the, the Snowy Hydro is a good example of that, right? The original yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know? Absolutely. That, that costs a squillion in the day yeah. To, yeah. to build. You know, yeah. do we, are we glad we have it? Well, that's yeah. actually paid itself back many times. What a great investment. Putting, putting sewage into... Publics, anyway. Let's oh, yeah. um, spend money. Spend money. Yeah. Take on debt to do it. But yeah, don't yeah. if you're going to like you know buy right. a, a submarine right. for sixty billion and then tear up a contract <laughs> two years later. That's just not smart money. Probably not a good idea. It's smart money management. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, let's not go there. Uh, mate, let's finish up with a question from Kirk who says, "Hi Scott and Andrew, uh, you were talking about ETFs which contain sh- cash, shares, bonds as a diversified portfolio. Now, this was the Vanguard Diversified High Growth ETF that we talked about. Both you and Andrew's main criticism was that the bond and cash were anchors on the long-term return. I agree with this entirely, says Kirk. I'm tipping there's a butt coming, Andrew. Uh, the <laughs> argument for such ETFs being that cash and bonds diversified away from shares, etc., and would reduce volatility as opposed to risk. Doesn't having your diversification within an ETF actually negate one of the major advantages of diversification? That advantage being if one part of your portfolio, e.g. shares, is down and you need money, you can access the other parts of your portfolio to minimize locking in the losses. If your diversification is within an ETF, you can't just sell the cash component by itself. You have to sell everything proportionally. This is true even if you are prepared to weather the reduced returns for reduced volatility. It still makes no sense having your Mm -hmm. less volatile assets combined with your more volatile ones. Mm -hmm. That's from Kirk. Yeah. That's an interesting thought experiment. Yeah, no, I make some good points with 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 all of that kind of stuff. Uh, yeah, so many. I would say anecdotally, eight out of ten people, whoever the conversation comes up, I'm talking sort of middle age below kind of people, and you ask about their super. It's like, oh, I mean, my work, I tick the balance box because because they're not idiots, right? Because when you put something in front of someone and says, do you want high risk or do you want balanced for your nest mm-hmm. egg? Like, well, I'm mm-hmm. taking balanced things. I'm not, yeah. not reckless. Yeah. What, the, what, what they don't understand is you're getting in products sort of not exactly like this, but like this, where it's just sort of like, yeah, we're just going to, we're just going to, uh, reduce your short-term volatility, but there's going to be a massive, massive long-term cost for all of that. Mm. In fact, I would say you're mm. taking the high-risk option. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, there's. I think a lot of these strategies and these ETF constructions are ultimately counterproductive. And if, mm. if as the listener was saying, if really what you want is sort of something to depend on when times are tough and that, you can do it. You just leave a bit of cash mm. or whatever on the sideline. You don't have to put it all into one basket and then try and manage it indirectly that way. So yeah, I agree. I'm I'm going to agree with you both, but also just posit a different perspective, which is just that 
I don't know if the rapper being the single ETF is actually as important because if you personally did the investing that they suggest and you put $100 into this ETF or you put $100 into the asset classes independently and then in a year's time when shares fell, your total portfolio was worth $80 in both cases. The fact that the shares bit fell means you still got 80 bucks and you're still selling a portion of your portfolio. Now, in theory, if you sell a cash portion, you're going to replenish that cash portion back to its original level at some point, which is exactly what the Vanguard ETF would actually do. So I don't love this ETF, but I'm not entirely sure, and, and this might come down to a bit of kind of philosophy and just general preference and ideology, but I'm not sure it matters, Andrew. I've got to say, you know, yes, you're selling proportionally part of everything, including part of the cash and part of the shares and part of the bonds. That's absolutely true with an ETF. But if you believe in the weighting idea in the first place, you want to have 20% of your, pass- your portfolio in bonds and mm-hmm. 10% in cash and 10% yep. property, whatever it is, you're going to reweight to that point if that's your starting point at some point anyway, in which case you end up back at where you started with the ETF. Mm. So, Kirk, I'm not. Uh, you're absolutely right. You could sell individual parts, but your strategy would be to then move away from the pre-mixed allocation percentages that the ETF itself would go for. Because if you, you know, if if the shares fell 40%, for example, but cash didn't, the 20% fall overall is what you'd still get in either case. The amount of cash you'd have would be the same. Your ability to sell those assets would be the same. Uh, I'm not entirely sure. Now, the, the difference would be you can choose which proportion of cash, bonds, and shares you want at different times. And I completely agree with you there, and I completely agree with Andrew there. So I'm, I'm talking about both sides of my mouth here. It, it, the, the, value, the value reduction in both cases would be identical. Because mm-hmm. if you start with their proportions, and then when you sell, you've got the same impact as those proportions were in the first place, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd have the same dollar value no matter what. Yeah. What, what, the, what it relies on, though, is you choosing manually to change those proportions yourself outside what the ETF would do. And I think most of us would. So you're absolutely, I completely agree with you in that sense, Kirk. But I would say separately, that there is just that idea of, uh, you know, looking at them independently versus one wrapper, the dollar value may not be particularly different during that journey. Yeah. And my, my point, just to repeat it, is, is if, if that weighting is appropriate for you, then yeah. Yeah, correct. Well, Spot on. Exactly. Why well, do it? But but I, I just question. Yes, that's right. I just that's question right. for most people. If you're sort of like, especially 15 years away from retirement, I yeah. wouldn't put a single. <laughs> this is not investment advice, but I personally wouldn't be having anything <laughs> held in yes. cash. I'm, I'm I'm talking about uh, sort of not your rainy day fund and okay, all of okay, that okay. kind of yes, stuff. Yes, but yes, yes, but yes. In, uh, the amount that I am investing right. for my future of that amount, there is not a single cent in cash or bonds in in all of that. Very safe. Yep. Not not saying they're not, but it's just that they're probably in, in t- purchasing power terms. They're not going to do me any favors uh, over my period. I'll take the volatility yes. and the much much higher returns. In, when in, when retirement starts to come within view, okay, we can have the discussion and then we can start to re reweight things there if necessary. But yeah, if if you're if you're below fifty, certainly at the very least, I, I would I would I would I would go with quote unquote higher risk. Yeah. <laughs> and and that's and that's to Kirk's point. It it, it gets the Julie, the Julie Gillard answer of I, I reject the pre- the premise of your question because mm. having having that proportion independently or as part of the ETF. We're kind of saying we would do neither for exactly that reason, yeah. Um, because you you don't want to be in that circumstance. Rainy day fund separately, you shouldn't. In my view, mate, you shouldn't consider a rainy day fund part of your portfolio anyway. So yes, Kirk kind of is including it and saying, well, the ETF kind of includes it. Yeah, if the I, fridge I breaks that, or the car breaks down, you know, right, you, you right, want right, to you right. don't want to have to Hold be totally. De- yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's there's yeah. there's a lot of sense in doing that. Yep. So good, really good question. Really, not, I love the way you think about it, Kirk. I just think it's 
it, it, even theoretically, either answer might be wrong. If you start with a position of how do I maximize my long-term returns and have a rainy day account and have mm-hmm. money. If you're, by the way, if you're retired as well and you, you want cash to fund your retirement, equally don't consider that part of your portfolio, whatever mm-hmm. it's in, right? Just literally put that aside and say, I'm not going to buy shares with it if, share, if things fall. I'm going to use that cash three months, six months, one year, two years, five years, whatever cash you want comfortably. That's your, that's your living expenses money. Mm-hmm. The investment portfolio is over there. And to Andrew's point, no, I 100% agree. Uh, that should be, in my view and his view, in in shares if you're maximising your return. Even, by the way, you say under 50, mate, if you've got enough in your portfolio and you're going to try and get gains from that, if you're going to retire at 65 and live to 95, mm-hmm. you want a decent chunk of that in growth assets because you're not going to liquidate the last dollar for 30 years. Yeah. Probably longer than most people are investing before they retire, let alone after retirement. So I think the other thing is don't think about the retirement age as the end point of your investing. It's absolutely a point at which you're probably not contributing anymore. So you do need to think about the strategy. If you've got not enough money to get to 95, then you absolutely are thinking about how do I liquidate it in an orderly fashion. That's really important too. Mm-hmm. Um, this is where it gets a little bit more complex. But generally speaking, if you have enough to continue to compound it, you kind of owe it to yourself to compound at least some of it, maybe most of it, maybe even all of it um, in in a reasonably well-diversified, high-quality portfolio so that over time, you're able to use that money to, to live on for hopefully well into your, your older years. What was it with Buffett? Was he made like 90% of his money after the age of 60 or something like that? Something stupid, like 99% after 55 or something. It's yeah, ridiculous. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, if, if he had gone to cash and bonds and stuff, oh, I'm getting 50, you know, I'm 55, right, retirement's right. not I better, too I better change my portfolio. Yeah, exactly. And by the yeah. way, those books have fallen, grown and fallen and grown and whatever. And oh, people yeah. will be saying, well, he's obviously a billionaire he can afford to. The, the point is that depending on your living, he's not drawing down any of that because he doesn't need it to live. Or he's not, yeah. it's not that expensive a life. So it's not a matter, a matter of saying that, you know, you can only do a few billion. The idea is, you know, if you have enough to let it compound, keep compounding it because it's going to give you more money to spend rather than less. Delayed gratification, low time preference. You know, low time preference. That's a Bitcoin thing. It's a good. It's a good thing. It's a, it's, it's, it's it's just it's a great way not to make it about that, but it's just that idea of delayed gratification. It's the cookie experiment. Mm. The what is it? The marshmallow experiment. You know. You eat this marshmallow now. If you can resist it for 10 minutes, I'll give you two. It's it's sort of if, you know, while we're on Buffett, someone is sitting in the shade today because 50 mm-hmm. years ago, someone planted an oak tree. You know, just yeah. think think longer term and and recognize that with every investment, there's that, that lovely phrase that I, I so often quote of opportunity cost. Cash has got its strengths but it's got its downsides too. Shares have got their strength. They're down. You, what, what, when you put money, $1 one place, it can't be eaten two places at once. And so what's the cost here? And, and if you're 55 and you've got enough, sort of as I say, as a rainy day fund, you expect to be in the markets for a while. You like low volatility and safety? Well, put it in cash, but just understand that you, you're probably going to go backwards in purchasing power terms. Uh, go with shares, great. You'll get a long-term return. Just understand it's going to be lots of ups and downs along the way. And you, each there'll be the right answer for each individual person, but they're the things you've got to think about. We've had two Bitcoin references and one opportunity cost. That's enough for today. We will call this one done. If you have questions for the podcast, please do hit us up. Also, follow us on Twitter. We've had some fun interactions, as I mentioned, on Friday. It continues to be a really fun place to chat with our listeners and others besides. But come and join us uh, on the Twitter machine. Uh, Andrew is at Sage underscore Simeon or at Strawman Invest. Almost alluded me then. Uh, You can get me on Insta or Twitter at TMF Scott P or The Motley Fool at The Motley Fool AU. I'm on Facebook at Scott Phillips Money and you can email us as always if you have a long question info at fool.com.
dot au. Are you still rocking? Sorry, I've got to ask. Are you still rocking out on uh, Mastodon? Oh, still rocking out Mastodon. I haven't posted <laughs> that in about six weeks, but I'm still there. Officially, I haven't checked. Later haven't on, checked off air, I'll, I'll fill you in on Nosta. They, they get excited about something. Oh dear. Yeah, Nosta. <laughs> yeah, Nosta. Is it a Bitcoin thing? No, it's not. It, you know, there is an affiliation, I suppose. But oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah, so it's a different. For it, everything, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah check it out. N O S T R. I wish I'd stopped the podcast about three minutes ago. Too late. Full on. <laughs> Cheers. <laughs> the Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.